Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, this is. See, sorry. Very, you're very, very warmly welcome to what is the first lecture in the uh, LSE European Institute's Perspective on Europe uh, series, um, which between now and next May is going to offer you a real, we hope, cornucopia of riches. Um, top politicians, academics, uh, journalists, business leaders, and so on, including uh, in this term, in, Michel in Michelmas term, uh, a number of events on 1989 and its impact. So please do check the LSE events pages, check the European Institute's web pages. Um, as I say, there's a, there's a lot coming up. Now, today's theme, as you know, is surely amongst the most elusive and beguiling of the subjects which we explore in this institution. Um, the subject of Europe in the round, unlike the European Union as such, uh, though God knows that is uh, hard enough to describe as well, the subject of Europe really tests the empirical and inductive methods um, of the social sciences to the limit. And uh, describing it really is a case of all hands on deck. Because as well as political scientists and sociologists uh, and geographers and international relations experts, we need historians and we need philosophers and we probably also need literary critics. In the LSE's European Institute, as many of you will know, we devote a whole master's course to the idea of Europe as a kind of imagined community. And we think it's a fascinating exercise in itself, uh, of course, we would. But in fact, this is more, far more than an entertaining thought experiment. Because the answer, or answers, uh, to the question of what is Europe impact on some rather important political decisions which we need to make as Europeans and which will affect us all, not least the size and limits of the European Union and only a little less directly, the size and outer edge uh, of NATO with its collective security guarantee. So this is big stuff. And while some measurements uh, of some measurements of Europe look pretty straightforward, uh, we all know what Central and East Europeans uh, meant when, after 1989, they spoke of returning to Europe. But what are we to make of the president of Kyrgyzstan when he delivered a speech some years ago on, you guessed it, his country's European vocation? And I would remind you, just in case you've forgotten, that Kyrgyzstan shares a border with China. Now, few people are better qualified to wrestle uh, with definitions of Europe than William Wallace. As professor, now emeritus professor of international relations, um, here at LSE since 1995. He has been and remains a much respected and well-liked colleague and an internationally renowned expert, as you all know, on such matters as EU and NATO enlargement. As Lord Wallace of Saltaire, he is a deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats. He's deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats in the House of Lords, where he is also Liberal Democrat spokesman on foreign affairs and defence. His career to date has spanned academia and politics with distinction. 
and he's included, and it has included uh, several years as director of studies at uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House, and five years at St Anthony's College, Oxford. And of course, he will be known to many of you here this evening as co-author with his wife Helen, professor with us in the LSE European Institute of the seminal work, Policy Making in the European Union, which is now, I think, in its, which is in its fifth, fifth edition. The sixth edition comes out in January. January. Thank you. Excellent. Yes. Now, as far as Don't I... throw it at each other. It's heavy enough to knock anyone out. <laughs> as far as I can see, the, the only uh, unsettling question mark uh, in such a distinguished career is his membership, was his membership of the Conservative, Liberal and Labour clubs whilst an undergraduate at Cambridge. <laughs> now, his Wikipedia profile is silent as to whether these memberships were actually simultaneous. Uh, and as to the criteria William used in evaluating um, the respective merits of those clubs. Although we are told, tantalizingly, that he found the Liberal Club the most attractive. Now, I do not believe everything um, I read in Wikipedia. I hasten to add that uh, I'm bound to point out that Wikipedia can be amended and corrected, but William has clearly been far too busy thinking about what he's going to say to us this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, Lord Wallace or Salter. I have to respond to that. Um, it, it was the custom uh, when you went up to university in the end of the 1950s, early 60s, you would join several different fiscal clubs. Helen, my wife, for those of you who, who, who may be being taught by Helen at the Open Institute, is an expert on electoral fraud. Uh, which comes from her time as an undergraduate at Oxford when, uh, as president of the Liberal Club, she was often called upon uh, to serve on panels investigating electoral fraud in the Labour Club and occasionally in the Conservative Club. Um, that's the, the way politics used to evolve in those days. Um, this is a, a lecture about maps and with maps. Now, I'll come on to the maps in, in a while. And let me explain. I'm, I started life as a historian. Um, and moved into the international politics of Europe. As an undergraduate at the University of, of Cambridge in the end of the 1950s, I was taught English history and European history. There was no connection between the two, of course, um, because England wasn't part of Europe. And the European history that I was taught was the history of Germany, France, Italy, and the Low Countries, and occasionally Spain and Portugal. Um, I was asked in June 1989 to lecture to the Royal College of Defence Studies on the issue, what is Europe? And I was writing at the same time a book on the transformation of Europe since the Second World War. I argued to the assembled military officers from a number of NATO countries that the Cold War wasn't necessarily a permanent institution. And I vividly remember the German officers agreed with me and the British officers thought I was a dangerous left-wing radical. Um, I, I thereupon took with the LSE maps units, and I'm very glad that Jane Pugh, who drew some of the original maps, is here tonight, uh, to sort out some maps of how Europe would change as the Cold War ended finished the book in October 1989, just in time for the Cold War to end. 
given the lecture to the RCDS every year since then, and every year I have to change it because the maps have changed. And one of my maps, I regret to say, is, is three years out of date. Uh, it, you have to update continually because new countries are emerging, they're changing memberships of, of different organizations. So Europe is a very dynamic and unstable place. But since I'm talking about mental maps, I'd like, first of all, to ask you all, coming from various different countries, to think, maybe even write down for yourselves, what you think Europe is and where you think it is. Where, in your mind, is the center of Europe? There are, incidentally, several contesting places. Um, what's the southernmost point in Europe? Um, British officers would always say the Straits of Gibraltar, uh, not remembering that there are other bits of southern Europe around the place, but that's part of it. Where's this western edge? I can think of several places in several different countries which are called Land's End or Finisterre or Finisterra, the case may be, Spain, Portugal, France, uh, and England, none of which, I would argue, are the westernmost point in Europe. What about its eastern boundary? Any of you ever been to the Urals? Not actually terribly high mountains. Uh, the Holy Roman Emperors <laughs> thought that the Carpathians were the eastern boundary of Europe. Herodotus thought that the River Don was the eastern boundary of Europe. How many states would you say there were in Europe today? 20, 30, 40, 50? How many were there 100 years ago? I'm going to come back to some, all of these questions. How many 50 years ago? We carry around in our heads images of the world. Some of them come from the maps that we saw at school, were taught about at school, or saw in our newspapers and other things. They organize our view of the world. And different labels emerge to talk about Eurasia, or when I was young, Euromed, or uh, Eurafrica, which in the 1960s, as Mario Tello will remember, was a very uh, favorite concept uh, in imperial France. Uh, and different labels organize countries differently. Where you stand depends, as Donald Price said famously in Harvard, on where you sit. So a Brit sees Europe very differently from a Finn, who in turn sees it very differently from a Greek or a Turk. Just as the Asians see Europe from different viewpoints, I've just been in India uh, talking with some Indian diplomats about why the Chinese don't really accept that India is properly Asian. Very interesting set of concepts. Well, here we are. This is Europe. Europe isn't actually a continent. As you can see, it's a peninsula stuck on the edge, the western edge of Asia. And um, to say that there is a clear eastern boundary, uh, these current boundaries are amongst the many that have been drawn and redrawn by battles and peace treaties and whatever over the last few years. It is a huge exaggeration. The Don, of course, goes up from there. The Carpathians split the middle of Romania here. Uh, incidentally, the Holy Roman Emperors settled Germans in towns along the Carpathians in the middle, middle of the 14th century to keep the Mongols out of Europe next time the Mongols invaded. 
And they were still there in 1990, although many of them have now gone back to Germany all these many generations on. And actually, it's not good to say that, that Europe has a clear southern boundary. The Mediterranean is an enclosed sea, is extremely easy to cross. The Straits of Gibraltar are half as wide as the Straits of Dover. So if that cuts Europe off from Africa, this clearly ought to cut Europe off uh, from Britain. Um, and as we well know, um, populations and empires have moved back and forth across the Mediterranean throughout history and continue to do so. Numbers of legal and illegal migrants travel backwards and forwards across the Mediterranean. I remember a Spaniard, Spanish official telling me that every summer between one and two million Moroccans move home across Spain from Belgium uh, and France. Uh, that's uh, a normal migration. So, um, what do we mean by Europe? Here I put Europe in inverted commas. Europe is an idea as well as a geograph geographical entity. Is it a continent or is it a civilization? And what do we think are the key elements which for us define Europe? And I say this knowing that I may now be edging into an area where I will begin to offend some people in the audience. I have received over my 10 years in the LSE many outraged emails from Israelis, Turks, Greeks, Bulgarians, Ukrainians, etc. And I hope I'm not offending you by talking about the different concepts that people have of Europe. Is it geography? Is it religion? Um, I was chairing the Hungarian foreign minister today at Chatham House, and he said at one point that there's no question that Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan are European. And then he said, because they have this old Christian tradition. Well, that's true of Georgia and Armenia, but Azerbaijan is a, a little bit uh, on the edge there. Um, is it history and culture? In which case we are really into a contested area. Is it race or nation? The European races, the white races, that's there underneath the surface, uh, still in some discussions. Is it standards of governance? We expect European states to behave according to certain qualities of order, democracy, human rights. The idea of Europe is also muddled by the overlap between the idea of Europe and the idea of the West, and also the idea of the modern world versus the ancient world. Karl Marx wrote about the Asiatic form of production as opposed to the European form of production, meaning Asia was the East, the uncivilized Europe was the West, the civilized. The overlap is there in Thomas Mann, a whole set of particularly German literature. So Western civilization and Western Christendom often overlapped. You still find in the right-wing discourse uh, that faith defines whether you're European or not. In the left-wing discourse, it's much more, much more often secularism, religion. I remember in the early 1990s, Mario will certainly remember, uh, people talking about whether or not we can have in uh, to the European Union countries that had not gone through the three R's, uh, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Revolution. 
know, rights of man, all these things. And if Bulgaria and Romania were beyond the pale on that, then really perhaps they weren't acceptable in our uh, secular liberal terms. When we talk about Europe, do we see it as separate from North America, or is it part of the West under American leadership? When I grew up, it was very much part of the West. The whole idea of Western civilization, as taught in all American universities, was in effect sold to the United States by that great wave of German intellectuals, many of them Jewish, who fled to the United States in the 1930s and 1940s, and who saw the United States as taking on everything that they believed was best about Western European civilization in its defense against the East. But there's another element as well, which is Europe as a declining region. Europe as the old world as opposed to the new. And uh, Dick Cheney, you remember, even divided Europe into the old and the new. Uh, Spengler was writing about this many years ago. There's a constant tone in uh, American right-wing writing, which is that Europe is incapable of standing up to itself, is going to succumb to some new foe. In the 1970s and 1980s, it was Finlandization, as they called it, for the whole of Western Europe before the Russian threat. Now it's Eurabia. Europe is going to be swamped by Muslims and will be incapable of standing up to them. Christopher Caldwell's latest book is the latest example of this uh, over-simplistic form. So who defines Europe? Well, the Treaty of Rome says any European state may apply to become a member. So leaves it entirely open. What do we mean by European state? Well, that didn't matter in 1950 because quite a lot of what we now regard as Europe was behind the Iron Curtain. Um, I did ask uh, a number of people who would advise Jean Monnet uh, what they thought he meant by Europe, and the answer I got was, so long as European unification eventually included Germany, France, Italy, and Britain, he didn't mind too much who else was in it. That's not a bad sort of definition of it. Uh, the North Atlantic Treaty uh, says, you can read it, on the territory of any of the parties in Europe or North America, or the Algerian departments of France, North Africa, as we now think, or on the territory of the islands, in other words, the Canaries and the Azores. It didn't actually say what about the South Caucasus, because that wasn't on the agenda at the time. The Council of Europe, very interestingly, lists first the requirement that each applicant shall have standards in civil rights, democracy, and order, and then says any European state that meets this criteria may join. Puts it in, in a, a different way. The OSCE, um, as Mullis has already said, extends across the whole of Eurasia, and its current chair coming into office is Kazakhstan. We all have different national images and national myths. I remember coming across lots of people trained in French elite schools who had learned French geography in the way that you learn, in, used to learn in France, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way. And they learned that Europe went from the Atlantic to the Urals and stopped at the Bosphorus. So that uh, Western Istanbul was in Europe, but the rest of Turkey was clearly not in Europe, whereas the Atlantic to the Urals meant that it was. Many British politicians uh, sort of vaguely understood the same. When John Major was Prime Minister, 
He once said on the Today programme one morning, uh, talking about enlargement in the early 1990s, he had no objection to Eastern enlargement extending to include Russia at least as far as the Urals. And as I happened to know his then diplomatic advisor, I phoned him up later on that morning to say, have you got the Prime Minister's plan for persuading the Russians to split their country in two? Um, to which he replied, we have ensured that the Prime Minister will never say that again. Um, there are also competing historical narratives. As it happened in 1989, the Council of Europe, then a Western European organization, published a rather splendid history of Europe by a committee of historians under uh, Jean-Patrick Dorothel with uh, Italian, British, and German advisors, which gave a very Western Christendom, Western civilization view of Europe, just as the Cold War ended. Throughout Fury in a range uh, of other historians, Norman Davis, the Oxford historian, published a even fatter book, about 1,500 pages long, uh, to demonstrate that Poland was really at the center of Europe and not at the periphery. And I have on my shelves at home quite a lot of other attempts to argue about where Europe was, what the history definitely proved. Um, part of our problem is that Europe is, is moving all the time. Many of you who are in your 20s may assume that the Europe you're living in today is relatively stable. It isn't, and it hasn't been. Over the past century, there's been absolutely radical political, social, and economic transformation, and two huge wars, both of which involved massive transfers of population and uh, large-scale slaughter. Almost no state in Europe has the same boundaries today as it had 100 years ago. Uh, yet, you will still hear people talking about the essence of Hungary or the essence of uh, of Romania or whatever, Hungary being a particularly delicate case in point since before 1914 it was twice as large as it is today. Uh, new states emerged from the European empires after the end of the First World War and in, since 1989 uh, according to some people, a, a further 20 to 24 states have emerged in Europe if you include Eurasia. So the widespread popular belief that Europe is a stable entity is contradicted by this surge of change which we have all been through. So Europe has had an elastic character and still continues to have one about which we can only argue, and I hope you will continue to argue. Which of the European features qualify states to institutional membership? And since part of our problem is that the argument that any state may apply to join the European Union or NATO is easily translated to any state, any European state is entitled to become a member of the European Union and NATO. We then have to argue what are the assessments which we, we should make as to assess whether this country meets all the criteria. Well, we found this very easy when I was an undergraduate because Europe then was core Europe of the six. In the 1980s, dissidents in Poland, Czechoslovakia, as it then was, and Hungary, reinvented the idea of central Europe, the countries between Germany and Russia, which they argued, this is Milan Kundera, and all those others 
of that sort. These were countries which, as, as Brian Kondor put it, were in the center, were under the control of the East, but belonged culturally to the West. The one way of trying to say we should be shifted from Soviet control to partnership with Western Europe. And since then, institutionalized Europe has exploded. The EC6 is now the EC27 and will become the EC early 30s within the next 10 years. NATO is up to 28 with a number of others with membership action plans. The East has been transformed over the last uh, 20 years. Yugoslavia has split up, Czechoslovakia has split up, and above all, the Soviet Union has split up. Mediterranean migration has brought perhaps 4 million people of Turkish origin into citizenship of the European Union, perhaps some 3 to 4 million people of Moroccan origin, others from Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, and beyond. So Mediterranean migration has tied Europe and its south together. Um, and we're then stuck with the anomalies that remain. Norway preferring to stay out. It's rich enough to stay out. Switzerland staying out because it doesn't want to accept the rules. Iceland thinking it didn't have to join, but now we're considering. Uh, Turkey officially committed to join, but not entirely sure whether it wants to accept all the rules. So, um, that leads us on to a few maps. And this is a map of Europe. And I hope you all appreciate, um, those of you who do not come uh, from the Mediterranean, what this tells you about the ancients' view of the world. Um, I borrowed Helen's um, classical dictionary, uh, where it reads, the term Europe originally stood for central Greece and was eventually extended to the whole of the Greek mainland. This was then Europe, Asia, and Africa or Libya. Um, as the Greeks and then the Romans slowly expanded, they discovered this part of Europe up to the Don, and even this part of Europe, although the classical dictionary says central Germany uh, was never really explored, and Scandinavia was entirely unknown to the ancients. So um, before we think about uh, what's happened to Europe since then, that's where we started. It's crucial to what I'm trying to argue to you that the idea of Europe shifted between 500 and 1000 AD, north and west. This is one of the many maps I could have shown you about medieval Western Christendom or medieval Europe, which went from uh, northern Italy, Tuscany, and Lombardy, uh, over the Alps, up the Rhone Valley, the Rhine, the Low Countries, into southern England. Uh, since I spent some of my time in Yorkshire, I just wish to tell you that the, the monks of Fountains Abbey used to sell their wool crop to merchants in Florence. Um, and when uh, Edward I uh, went bankrupt on some of his loans, it ruined several banks in Florence. Uh, so this was very clearly, at that time, the centre of a new Europe. Um, why had Europe been pushed north and west? The Mongols, of course, the split between eastern and western Christendom, and then the arrival of Islam, which cut, first cut off Spain, 
And then, of course, as the Ottoman Empire expanded, cut off southeastern Europe uh, from uh, the core of modern Europe uh, in Western Europe. And if one looks at maps today, this is a German planning map showing the economic core of Europe today. You'll see that it runs much the same uh, way from Middle and Southeastern England across the Low Countries, the Rhine Valley, the Rhone Valley, into uh, Northern Italy. A hundred years ago, for those of you who played the board game strategy, Europe had a small number of large countries and just a few scattered peripheral small countries around them. There were 70 countries that counted in the game strategy. Um, the British Empire, the French Empire, the German Empire, Italy, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. Um, after that, uh, not too much uh, counted. Um, after the First World War, the Zwischenländer, so I'll take you back, these uh, countries, of course, as Germany, the Russian Empire, and the Habsburg Empire broke up, so new states, a very large Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, a larger Romania, and the unstable entity of Yugoslavia emerged for the interwar years. After the Second World War, the Soviet Union, recovering some of the lands of the Russian Empire, physically pushed Poland west, taking off uh, what is now parts of western Ukraine and Belarusia, incorporating the Baltic states into uh, the Soviet Union, um, and Poland taking over part of what the Germans had conquered from the Poles and the Wends a, a thousand years before. And with this iron curtain across the middle of Europe, you notice Austria as well as Germany uh, divided. And the Europe in which I grew up was the Western civilization, NATO Europe, Atlantic Alliance Europe. I think I sort of understood when I was 21 that New York was closer to London than London was to Warsaw. Um, and I automatically, like so many other people, went off to New York as I graduated. I certainly had in my mind's eye that Vienna was west of Prague, because Vienna was part of the west and Prague was part of the east. And it was a revelation to me after 1989, and I may say to an awful lot of other people, I remember talking to a bunch of Italian businessmen in 1990, who said, yes, we also thought that Vienna was west of Prague, to discover that the world was different than we had thought. Um, the core Europe that emerged was the original six members of the European community. And with Jane Q's help, just playing around with maps in 1989, I put a, a, a dotted lines on this, the boundaries of Charlemagne's empire in the year 815. A remarkably close uh, fit. Um, it's not too surprising that Konrad Adenauer, the Catholic Chancellor of Germany in the 1950s, uh, who came himself from the Rhineland and had never really liked Prussians, uh, was, was, was quoted as saying on one occasion that with the Cold War, Asia reached the Elbe. He identified uh, the Russians with the Asians and wasn't too sure how European the Prussians were either when it came to it. Um, out of that emerged the Western Europe, uh, civilian Western Europe this was, 
in which the European Union, the European community expanded to include Britain, Ireland and Denmark, and then Spain, Portugal and Greece, with the West European neutrals as associated members. A very odd looking Europe in which Finns and Swedes would go on holiday every summer, flying a roundabout route to get to their Greek, Greek islands. But of course, none of us really bothered about these countries in between because they were behind the Iron Curtain. And I can assure you, working in the British think tank, if you met people from the think tanks of Poland or Czechoslovakia or Hungary in the 1980s, they followed the Soviet lines so closely it was intensely boring, so we weren't very keen on the idea. Suddenly, in 1989, a new Europe opened up. We thought that the new Europe was going to include what were then called the Visegrad countries, which would move from east to west, leaving the Soviet Union behind. We weren't too sure about eastern Germany, and we all assumed that Yugoslavia would naturally come in very easily with them. Uh, to play around uh, with historical anomalies, I got out of the Times Historical Atlas and got the LC Maps unit to sketch in very lightly this dotted line, which is the boundary between Western Christendom and Eastern Christendom in 1515, to tell people that there was some historical uh, evidence for this sort of reshaped Europe. I gave a seminar in Harvard, which I presented these various maps and didn't realize the damage that I was doing, because Sam Huntington, who was chairing the seminar, was immensely enthusiastic about this. And this is a good example of the power of maps. Sam Huntington then put up the maps with a solid line rather than a dotted line to show that this is the absolute boundary between the civilized world and the uncivilized world, causing intense aggravation to people in Greece uh, and elsewhere. Um, many of his other maps were equally bad. Um, if you look at uh, the crisis of civilization, his maps of Asia also have many faults in them. Norman Davis thereupon drew a map of Europe which I haven't put in because he has six fault lines in Europe and is much too complicated to understand. Um, now we are in this Europe, and this is two years out of date because Romania and Bulgaria are, of course, in the European Union. And uh, the remains of former Yugoslavia are now surrounded by the European Union. And what we used to call the lands in between, the Zwischenländer, are now included in Europe. And the new Zwischenländer are these. Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, and then, of course, the countries of the southern Caucasus. So we are, Europe has shifted in a real sense to the east. And again, listening to the Hungarian foreign minister saying that one of the problems for an enlarging European Union is that the small countries would come to dominate the large, and he said, and the peripheral countries would come to dominate the core. That's one of the problems with which the European Union is going to have to deal with. What you want to know is what's the right way to approach the idea of Europe? And the right way, of course, is from here. <laughs> um, look at it from London. Again, the LSE Maps Unit did this for me just to show you if you start from different places in Europe, what do you see? Well, from Britain, Iceland is actually not that far away. Uh, the Nordic countries are important. Uh, the low countries are absolutely vital to us. And the Mediterranean, the Western Mediterranean, is just about there. But further east than that, uh, one doesn't really go. If you start from Madrid, I first went to Madrid in 1977, just after Franco had died. We had a defense briefing 
in which the Spanish defense people went on about the strategic triangle of the Western Mediterranean. They couldn't think beyond the strategic triangle of the Western Mediterranean. But if you're Spanish, the Canaries, Mauritania, Morocco are absolutely vital. Eastern Europe, let alone the Baltic, is hardly there at all. If, on the other hand, you're Finnish, Baltic is the center of your world. And the Arctic Council is important, and Russia is your direct neighbor. And what happens in the Black Sea, let alone with the Turks, is rather a long way off your mental map. If you are, uh, however, Southern Italian, why on earth, you may ask, does Mr. Berlusconi spend so much time being nice to Colonel Gaddafi? Well, there's your answer. It's, it's very evident that for Italy, it's a Mediterranean country. Politically and economically, the center of Europe, I would argue, is now Berlin, and has indeed been Berlin on and off for the last hundred years. We fought two wars in the 20th century to try to stop the Germans from dominating uh, Europe. Um, there are those who would argue that if Europe is from the Atlantic to the Urals, the center of Europe is to be found somewhere around here, uh, and there are, I'm told, one or two uh, monuments in uh, southeastern Lithuania uh, or northeastern Poland, which suggests that, that is the center of Europe. But I would say politically, economically, and in all sorts of ways, this is the way the Germans, the most important country in Europe, see Europe. On the other hand, if you're Greek or Turkish, or Western Turkish, this is the Europe you see, in which the Middle East is very important, Cyprus is not as peripheral as it appears on other maps, and the Black Sea matters enormously, and what happens in the Southern Caucasus really comes into importance. This, just for fun, is a different map which reminds you why Europe can't cut itself off from its neighbors. These are pipelines. Uh, existing pipelines and those that are proposed, that's the Nord Stream pipeline uh, and there are others proposed across uh, the Mediterranean and the Nabucco pipeline uh, through um, Turkey and indeed the Russians have, have proposed some through the Black Sea. Uh, Europe's energy supplies depend on the south and on the east. And if one is beginning to talk about what do we need to learn in our mental maps of Europe. This is the new area that we need to learn. First of all, we worried a bit about the Mediterranean, at least the Western Mediterranean. Then we discovered in the 1990s that the European Union had more members around the Baltic than it had around the Mediterranean. And now, the European Union has two members on the Black Sea. And an applicant member, Turkey, all the way along the southern edge of the Black Sea. Um, some rather strong, promising gas deposits of the Crimea, not completely unconnected to arguments between the Russians and the Ukrainians over the future of the Crimea, Abkhazia here, the North Caucasus where a guerrilla war is in effect already underway, Georgia uh, and Armenia uh, to the south. So where does that leave us? I hope I've managed to offend a sufficient number of you to provoke uh, an argument. Um, what's the agenda for the future of Europe? Part of our problem is that the argument made about whether a country is European or not slides so easily from culture and history into institutional or political entitlement. Um, 
So I hear people say, and indeed the Hungarian Prime Minister said again today, I cannot believe that the country of Tolstoy is not European. Well, you know, whether or not particular Russians wrote great literature isn't quite the same as saying that that country therefore has to be European, let alone that it should therefore become a member of the European Union. But that's part of the slide which we are in. The Georgian president never appears in a photograph or on television without two flags behind him, the Georgian flag and the European Union flag. And he is quite clear, the Georgian foreign minister was in London two weeks ago, confident that Georgia will be accepted into NATO within the next five years, and sometime after that eventually into the European Union. So the question of who's European, who's not, can you say you're a European state, but we don't think you should become part of our club, um, or is to say to Georgia or to Turkey, actually, you're better off not joining the European Union to say, and we don't think you're European either, are very delicate, difficult arguments to make precisely because national identity, national history, national pride are all at stake in this question of uh, who is European, who is not. What are our problem areas? In the Western Balkans, perhaps in small and weak states, which have nowhere to go except to come within the European Union, and the problems that we're left with is how do we impose criteria on them about governance, about civil rights, about civil society, about the competence of their administration and the quality of their economy, which they can qualify and then be accepted into membership. Some very small, unstable, possibly even unviable states. Montenegro, for example, you, some of you may have seen The Merry Widow by Franz Lehár. The Merry Widow by Franz Lehár is an entire opera on the question, you can't take Montenegro seriously, can you? Thinly disguised as Pontevedro in the opera. Um, Turkey, an entirely different case, already a NATO member. It would be, if it joined the European Union, the largest state within the European Union and therefore a very serious candidate in every single way, needing the anchor of the prospect of EU membership for domestic reform. The new lands in between, now organized in the Eastern Partnership of the European Union, all very different. Uh, Moldova, deeply divided, with Transnistria still under Russian control, Belarus, uh, highly authoritarian, Ukraine, officially democratic, but actually uh, deeply corrupt, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And then the remaining associates, a deep debate going on in Iceland about whether they should join the European Union now, in which issues of national identity and national sovereignty and national independence, as in so many other countries, clash with economic need an economic advantage. And then there's Switzerland, which doesn't want to join and wants to benefit from being in the middle of Europe without accepting all the rules, and that's why I put it down as Europe's free rider. So let me finish, and then I hope that I can throw it up to you. And Europe doesn't have any acceptable definition. So we scrub around, 
We debate within our own countries whether we are European or not, in Britain as well as many other countries. We think of Europe sometimes as out there and sometimes as here with us, so that British people talk about going to Europe, but then so do Swedes, and so sometimes the Greeks. Um, uh, and we are still in our minds all the time redefining how European we think we are and how much other states, other countries are part of our Europe. But we have to draw boundaries. You can't have open marches at the edge of Europe because there's migration to consider, border control, trade, crime. We have to have firm borders. The problem between Poland and Ukraine. Now that the Poles, for very strong reasons, want to maintain open access as far as possible for Western Ukraine, but fuss about illegal immigration is very strong. Uh, there are extremely well-developed uh, trafficking routes. People resist it. And then, actually, you need to be around the table if you want to have your interests looked after. There are economic prizes for being in the European Union. Large-scale structural funds that can help your economy. Access to the internal market. So it matters whether you are in or not. Some states matter much more than others. Clearly, for the future, Turkey and Ukraine are far more important because so much larger than Moldova or Albania or even Montenegro. The Maghreb is a partner for Europe, a dependent partner, but it cannot be ignored. The Moroccan government has twice suggested that it ought to be entitled to apply to be a member of the European Union in the light of Morocco's historic contribution to European civilization, which is to say the contribution which Morocco and Spain made to what became later uh, the Renaissance. And then there's Russia, a European state, possibly, a European partner, sometimes, or an extra-European threat. Well, one could go on at enormous length about the internal debate in Russia over Russian identity and how far they see themselves as European or separate from Europe. And lastly, there's the United States, which has looked after Europe for us, is what NATO has been about. We haven't had to defend ourselves for the last 60 years because the Americans have done it for us. Do we think that the Americans will continue to lead Europe and see Europe as one of their first priorities? Are we happy with that? Or do we think that the Europeans have now got to get their act together as the United States turns away from Europe? I hope that's enough questions. Um, so let me turn it over to you to disagree with me. Thank you.
Yes, my name is Mr. Bob. I'm an Italian, and I like it, the map you presented there. I want to ask to you the, I mean, a question is, does really meaning now to have so many states in Europe living in a globalized world where the main problem is economic globalization and integration, does not maybe it's more sensible to talk about, let's say, block of state. This means we have a Mediterranean state, Baltic state, Eastern block of state in a more federated way and collaborate each other. Thank you. I hinted in my final remarks that, in a sense, we all have it easy in Europe because we rely on the Americans to do the difficult things. What's the difference between the United States of, of America and the European Union? Fundamentally, it is that the United States has a federal budget spent very heavily on defense and security and a foreign policy. The European Union has neither a defense policy or an effective foreign policy because the Americans do it for us. Um, and uh, we are to one degree or another serious or not serious about our national defense policies or our foreign policies and we certainly don't work together. Um, I think in a globalized world in which Europe is becoming less, much less central than it was 50 years ago, we benefit enormously by working together. And we waste enormous resources by continuing to work separately. Let me give you an obvious example. Um, in the first draft of the European Security Strategy, um, three years ago, um, it, it, uh, there was the statement that the European Union, then of 15, uh, employed 35,000 diplomats. The logical conclusion was there's a huge amount of duplication we should have a European External Action Service. Member governments, of course, insisted on having that struck out. Shortly afterwards, I found myself in Beijing, being looked after by the splendid Irishman who runs the LSE Beijing program, and we invited the ambassadors of several small European Union member states round for dinner at the Irish Embassy, and had a provocative discussion about what is specific about the Austrian, Slovenian, Greek, Irish relationship with China politically, which requires you to have a separate embassy. And the answers were not entirely clear. Um, we, we, we clearly, we benefit in a globalized world by working more closely together. We benefit enormously by having an internal European space for a whole range of reasons, uh, to travel easily across it. Your generation, you students, don't begin to understand how much more difficult it was to travel even across Western Europe 50 years ago than it is now. Uh, and we have benefited in huge ways from all of this. We don't have to take the hard decisions on foreign policy and defense because, by and large, we've seen ourselves as part of the West, subordinate to the United States, and, to put it bluntly and rudely, the characteristic European government posture towards any American administration is to wait until the Americans make a proposal and then to complain about it, or to complain that the Americans have not yet made a proposal. Um, that's not particularly ideal, but it does enable the European Union to remain a civilian power. There's a question over there.
journalists, uh, my name is Alex Williams. I'm a management student at the LSE. Um, British public opinion is traditionally seen to be quite Eurosceptic. Um, can you ever envisage a situation where the United Kingdom would withdraw from Europe? And would, how, how do you think that would play out? Would, could Britain survive without Europe? Could Europe survive without Britain? I mean, answer yes to all of those questions. That would be an extremely foolish thing to do. Um, in economic terms, we would lose out. In terms of political influence, we would lose out enormously. I listen to people in British politics saying, but surely China and India are much more important to Britain, we should have a partnership with China and India. And the illusion that somehow the Chinese would prefer to deal with Britain on its own, rather than to deal with the European grouping, is part of the, one of the, the real illusions of British politics. But let me emphasize again, all of these internal debates about national identity and national culture and national history. And each generation remakes its national culture, national identity, national history. Britain, for all sorts of reasons, has got stuck in about 1945, uh, in which, um, as the myth goes, we won the Second World War on our own. Um, and if, if you want to question that, just watch Remembrance Sunday, uh, the, the great national memorial day in Britain, and see how many non-British troops take part in that memorial. Um, when Helen, my wife, was uh, running courses for British civil servants many years ago, um, bright young people from top universities just come in, she would always ask them as a set of opening questions, one of which was, and which was the second largest contingent in the British army uh, after the British and the Second World War? And the answers would always come back, Canada and Australia. The answer, of course, was India. Um, we've forgotten about the Indians, we've forgotten about all the others, let alone the Russians. Um, and the, the, the mistaken myth of British history spitfires on BNP leaflets, I note. UKIP talking about Britain standing great and the Germans, after we won the war, what are the Germans doing winning the peace? Which is part of the whole agro of it, is, is a mindset which I think is deeply damaging to Britain and which we had to get over. But that's the mindset which the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and countless people on the right of British politics still float. And we shouldn't complain about that because in most other countries of, the, of Europe there are equal myths about history and myths about where they belong. Ernest Renard, in his famous lecture on a nation, as some of you will already know, said a nation is a group of people united by a misunderstanding of their history. Yes. Uh, my name is Rodolfo, um, uh, and my question is, uh, whatever happens to the Lisbon Treaty, uh, if Mr. Klaus signs it or not, uh, we already know that uh, it has already taught Europe uh, some quite uh, some lessons. One of the, some people talk about some shadows that it has, it has left behind. One of those shadows would be fear of referendums, and would referendums be a good way to to be talking about uh, such complex uh, and um, uh, political issues? And um, also, uh, there is a shadow of. Uh, 
the the enlargement uh, allowing some small countries to to define the whole agenda and at some uh, some point uh, we are now hostage uh, of uh, one man's idea thank you that's several large questions in one let me try and unpick them um, what was the original idea of Europe well the original idea of a united Europe after the Second World War uh, was an idea that came out of resistance, out of people who had fought the Germans, um, and who, but who saw themselves as fighting Nazism. Some of them indeed were German refugees. Some of them, like Billy Brandt, were Germans fighting in the Norwegian resistance. And he wanted to say this was a European civil war, but the state has failed, and now we have to build a Europe on the failure of the nation state. Um, for some people, it was a Catholic idea. Um, and I recall the wonderful story when the Treaty of Rome was being negotiated, uh, when the Dutch Prime Minister, the only Protestant amongst the six heads of government, um, went to a dinner in Rome, and the daughter of one of the other heads of government turned to him and said, isn't it wonderful, Mr. Prime Minister, that we are building a Catholic Europe? <laughs> and this caused a crisis within the Dutch government at the time. I'm sure the Dutch ambassador knows much more about this. Than I do. So for many, it was a Catholic Europe, and uh, the Committee for the Beatification of Robert Schumann still continues to work, although it hasn't yet succeeded. Uh, so there were many ideas of, of what Europe was about. Since the end of the Cold War, we've discovered a range of different ideas, and clearly the European Union today is built on an idea of European order, of European civilization of European governance. Now, whether that includes referenda is something we all have to debate. Um, on the whole, as we all discovered, any referendum produces the answer no, whatever the question is. Because in the national politics of most of our countries, the mass distrusts the elite. The age of deference is past, and I should say, you are all part of the elite. Don't forget that. Um, you, many of you, are studying already in a country different from your own, or will go off after the LSE and study in a country different from your own. Some of you will marry people from a different country from your own. One of the LSE's informal uh, uh, objectives is to promote transnational integration. Um, and um, don't laugh, it works far too well. Um, well, I'm very happy to say that Helen is one of the failures of the College of Europe uh, uh, and uh, she nevertheless came back from the College of Europe which in those days had a, a, a remarkably high proportion of young women amongst its students and, and married someone from her own country instead of the handsome Ita northern Italian uh, whom she might have married instead. Um, so, but you're all part of the elite and you, have, you move easily across Europe. Never forget that in all of our countries, there are people who don't move very much beyond where they live, who may move 50 miles, who if they go abroad will go to Majorca and complain to their travel agent there were too many Spaniards there, or if they're German will go to that, some of those bits of the Italian coast where they'll serve you frankfurters um, uh, for, instead of Italian food, so that the mass still remains national. And particularly in a recession, we're all benefiting from globalization and Europeanization, but the people who 
haven't got the skills or haven't got the money see themselves as losing out. And that's part of the tension between national cultures and resentment about the elite and Europeanization and globalization in which those who are really successful and those who are really rich begin to escape national boundaries and national tax systems and live very comfortably. So that's the limitation of the world we're in. And let me, since nobody's yet asked me on Turkey, talk a little about the Turkish issue here because it's also, I think, relevant in this context. I remember once a professor from Ankara University talking to a conference I was at in Istanbul and saying, you all have to understand that Turkey has 70 million people of whom 500,000 are entirely Western and European and very well off and very well educated. Many of them have been through British universities and elsewhere. And after that, there's another 500,000 who are almost there. And then there's 34 million who are the first generation in the cities who are learning about the industrial world, the modern world, civil society and everything else and are not entirely sure whether they want to assimilate to it or not. And then he said there was the other 35 million who are still living in the villages east of Ankara and who haven't yet come to terms with the modern world. Well, that's a very strong statement and part of our problem, of course, is that we are negotiating with the Turkish government, which is the Turkish elite, and which claims to be entirely European. Well, that's not entirely, of course, uh, unique to Turkey. You think of many other countries, and I won't name them immediately, where the gap between a highly European elite and a stubbornly nationalist uh, working class remains very powerful, remains very strong. That's a problem which if any of you are going to go into European government, European administration, or European politics, you will all have to straddle uh, back to the Netherlands. Uh, I happened to be in The Hague on the day of the Dutch referendum at a meeting in the headquarters of Shell with a number of rather senior members of the Dutch elite, all of whom assured me that the referendum would have a low turnout, so it was a no result on the Constitutional Treaty, it wouldn't matter very much, and the higher the turnout, the more likely it was it would be a yes vote. They were very confident that the Dutch people would do what the Dutch elite wanted them to do if they all turned out to vote. And that evening, I was sitting with the, Dutch, with the British ambassador, watching Dutch television, seeing some of the same people explaining why the Dutch people had not voted the way they should have done. That is part of the problem with referenda. I think if you'd had referendums on the Constitutional Treaty in almost any state in the EU, you would have been likely to get the answer, no. Karen. Hi, Karen Smith from uh, the International Relations Department. Um, William, I was thinking about boundaries and how uh, part of the tension here is that you were describing all sorts of economic links and cultural links that go beyond the institutional boundaries of the EU. I wondered if you wanted to say a few words about uh, two proposals that have been floated in various times in the last 20 years as sort of solutions to either uh, to overcoming that tension between the institutional boundary of the EU and these wider boundaries, economic, cultural, etc., etc. And the first is 
first and so on and so forth, making that very fuzzy. And the second is core Europe, that um, it's too difficult, this 27 plus, and therefore we have to go back to sort of Carolingian uh, Europe and just have a very small core of real European uh, states that somehow uh, will we'll be able then to integrate, leaving behind everybody else. Let me start with the second, the core Europe question, which has been around ever since Britain joined the European uh, community. Uh, it was voted, I think, by Billy Brandt in 1974. Uh, certainly almost as soon as the, the British joined, uh, some within the original six took fright and thought, how do we manage without these awkward sods who just uh, come in? Um, it rests upon the idea that, that France and Germany share an enormous amount in common and can run Europe between them. And that's always been its weakness because the French and German governments have a range of different views, assumptions, and interests. Indeed, again, at an early stage in this discussion, the Schaubler, Lammer Schäuble paper, um, talked about a core Europe in terms that the most important thing was to try to hold the French and Germans together as they were being pulled apart. The French because they were interested in the Mediterranean, the Germans because they were increasingly pulled towards the Baltic. I don't think a core Europe is a starter for a range of reasons, including the fact that as soon as you have a core Europe, other states want to join. The Maastricht Treaty wrote the rules for a single currency with a very clear and definite intention to make it impossible for the Italians to join. Whereupon, under Signor Prodi, the Italian government took the almost the only major economic set of reforms that it managed so far and qualified and joined, thus demonstrating how hard it is to keep others out. Um, as to fuzzy Europe, I think it's very difficult. Um, it may be that some in Turkey will be satisfied with membership of CFSP, um, but you know, the economic benefits of being around the table and having full access to the structural funds are also very strong. Um, and I'd love to make you the minister who'd explain to a Turkish prime minister that we, we like you a bit, you know, we'd like to give you country membership of this club, but not full membership, not easy to sell. And the biggest problem I have is, is with the idea of fuzzy borders as such. Um, I'm a politician now. Um, I am, like all politicians, beset by issues of migration. Um, go to Greece, particularly the Greek islands at the present moment, and you'll find, as this summer has, uh, has come up, masses of people coming in from Afghanistan, from the Punjab, from southern China, very effective trafficking routes for refugees and illegal economic migrants, deep resistance in all of our countries to those migrants coming in, demands that borders shall be tightened. And borders should be tightened not only against migrants, but also against drug smugglers and uh, all sorts of other criminals. So the inside-outside problem is a very major one. Um, the Finns manage their border with Russia extremely effectively. The Poles are doing their best to learn to manage their borders with Belarus and Ukraine without competent partners on the other side with whom to share it, but with the sense that you know, these people were part of Poland. 
between the wars, their grandparents were, we ought to be having free access across the borders. So there are some really extremely difficult issues here. I'm, I'm a pessimist. I think we have to draw lines. I think we have to have borders. And I think it's very hard to offer countries uh, a situation which they'll be half in and half out. Yes. Um, my name is Michael from the Ideas and Identities program. Um, I was in Finland uh, a year ago when there was the conflict with um, when Russia invaded Georgia quite unexpectedly. And I was just wondering whether you could unpack the situation as to um, mobilizing some kind of armed forces, what kind of problems may um, occur within the European Union as to maybe interfering with such conflicts in the future. Gosh. I'm sure it's a fascinating time to be in Finland since part of the, the, the Finnish national identity is we are the ones who stood up the Russians in the First and Second World Wars. Helen and I can well remember being taken to one of the museums of the Winter War in northeastern Finland uh, by Olli Rehn, who's now a commissioner, but was then uh, a student of ours. Um, the problem with, with Georgia is, first of all, how on earth would we get there? And secondly, how do we persuade our publics that we should be defending Georgia? And particularly now that a substantial chunk of Georgia is occupied by Russian troops. Uh, that's why we can't actually accept Georgia into NATO membership in the near future, because NATO membership implies that we will give military support. And we should not promise it unless we can fulfill it. It would help if the Georgian state were better organized, if Georgian politics were more stable, if Georgian civil rights were better developed. They're much better than they were in all respects, but there's still some way to go. Um, it would help if the EU had a Russian policy, which it does not. And there are huge gaps in any sort of common foreign policy for the European Union is the lack of a coherent approach to Russia. If we had a coherent approach to Russia, that would begin to provide a coherent policy towards Georgia. We need one, but we haven't yet got it. My name is Milta. I'm from the European Studies um, course as well. Uh, I wanted to pick up on the fuzzy Europe idea and the fact that you said Europe needs borders. And I was wondering if you meant Europe's borders or the European Union's borders. And more importantly, uh, do you think um, it should or if it's feasible and possible that Europe, the European Union eventually might or would coincide with Europe or vice versa? I want to duck that question because I simply don't know the answer to it. Um, and I, I do think it's a huge problem. And it starts with Turkey. Um, Western Turkey, in many ways, very European, very industrialized. Eastern Turkey, a very long way further east, with borders with Iran, Iraq, Syria. Um, and 
the two-way discussion we need to have with Turkish elites about the implication of Turkey joining the European Union involves on one side getting a debate going in Turkey about what sort of Europe they want to have and to contribute to because by coming in they would, they would become one of the most important countries, most important governments within the EU, and to get other European governments to think through the implications of having Turkey as a full member. Once, in a conference in Istanbul, I said that, of course, as Turkey joined the common foreign and security policy, they would naturally accept that control of the headwaters of the Euphrates and the Tigris would become a matter for European Union decision horrified by Turkish hosts. But of course it would have to be if we have more of a common foreign policy and the whole question of control of the waters of Mesopotamia um, for Syria and for Iraq uh, is a matter of potentially a war between Turkey and those states. So it would have to be a matter of common concern. A whole set of issues there which would, would, which would be pulled into blood. Um, if Georgia and Armenia insist that they are European, does that entitle them to membership? I, I don't think it does. Um, I'm not entirely persuaded about Ukrainian membership. If you scratch me, I would say that, that, that we take the small countries of the Western Balkans and they have nowhere else to go. We have to absorb them. Potentially, it's an enormous problem of governance and management because most of the time since the last enlargement, small state governments have behaved extremely well and decision-making has continued to work very well, but maverick governments do occasionally emerge. Um, in the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which preceded the OSCE in the 1980s, the Maltese government, the smallest government involved in the entire discussion, held up agreement for several weeks by insisting on an extra protocol on security in the Mediterranean. And they were able to do so uh, because they were prepared to be sufficiently awkward. So small states are a problem, but large states are, are an enormous problem as well. The European Union and NATO have been searching for some form of partnership short of membership. Neighborhood policy, Eastern partnership, a part of that. So was partnership for peace for NATO. The um, problem with both of them is that the African states, the partners, wanted more. Thought that this was second class membership and they wanted first class membership. The countries in the Maghreb, in North Africa, are more prepared to accept partnership and don't want membership. The problem there is what sort of partnership are we prepared to give them and can we offer them a partnership which doesn't look like superior to inferior uh, and gives them a real stake in the relationship. Um, a couple of things. Um, on uh, Turkey, it's a point we were discussing actually in class uh, last week. Um, we accepted Turkey into NATO in the early 1950s. Uh, so we are bound. Uh, you mentioned Syria, Iraq, who knows where a threat to Turkey could come from in the future. But under Article 5, of course, we would be committed to sending our young men and women to fight and perhaps die defending Turks 
from Iranians or whatever. And in a sense, that argument about who is on the inside uh, uh, geopolitically and who might be other was resolved 50, 60 years ago. I, I take your point about bringing in a whole nexus of problems which were just given in further salience by um, bringing Turkey into CFSP, but I somehow feel we crossed that Rubicon some time ago. Um, I've just, yes, sorry. Well, um, we also had the Central Treaty Organization, which included Iraq and Iran and Turkey at the same time. Um, we were all defending against the Soviet Union. The, the security situation in the Middle East has, has changed enormously since then. I, I just wish to mark that. I should remind you all, when I first started to work on EU enlargement, just after Britain joined, um, enlargement meant Spain, Portugal, Greece, and Turkey. Um, and Lucas Zucalis and I and others, and Jeffrey Edwards, were writing about the four Mediterranean countries who were going to join the European community. Turkey dropped out because of military coup. Um, the other three came in because they had finally got rid of their authoritarian regime. So there was a long history here, um, and we have been negotiating, discussing, arguing about European identity, Turkish identity, and a whole host of other things, relatively inconclusively since then. Let me add, I think the current government of Turkey is the best government they've had for a very long period. In some ways, it's also the least European, because the Ataturk idea of Turkey as a European country was an aggressively secular one and the link between Europe, modernization, and the secular state was part of the link. I just wonder if there's anyone in the audience from Turkey who would like to come in since we're in some, who has going through quite a few of the arguments. Um, is there anyone from Turkey who would like to make a point, an observation? No one at all. I know we have several Turkish students, but anyway. Um, sorry, will you, if I may, just one other very quick thing in just terms of eligibility for EU membership. I, I, obviously noted your, your caution, your reticence about Ukraine, about Caucasus. Um, you could say that maybe my question answers itself there, but I'm just trying to imagine a situation where um, uh, aspirant countries, particularly aspirant countries, have um, put themselves in a position where they can take on the acquis communautaire and sign up to all the rules and norms uh, of the European Union. In such circumstances, is there any argument other than uh, a rather curiously exclusive one or essentialist one for saying no, you cannot join apart from arguments about the absorption capacity of the European Union um, and assuming that maybe the geography isn't so forbidding and remote as to disqualify a country. What, on what grounds could one then actually say no, you can't join uh, if, but perhaps you will say, well, axiomatically if they put themselves, they were able to take on the whole thing then they would be able to join or would you say that? Well, my wife very kindly reminded me that in the fifth edition of policymaking of the European Union, the Copenhagen criteria of 2002 are listed, and the Copenhagen criteria, let me remind you, include not only uh, membership conditions, stable institutions, guarantee of democracy, rule of law, human rights, minority rights, functioning market economy, ability to adopt the acquis, which means an effective national and local administration and court system, and capacity of the EU to absorb new members. And the fourth is the tricky one, this, 
if you feel that the European Union hasn't the capacity to absorb new members which take it into an entirely different area, then one has to think again. And the question with Ukraine, of course, is above all about Russia. Um, American geopolitical strategists are very fond of saying Russia without Ukraine is a state, with Ukraine it's an empire. Russians in, uh, close to Putin think that as well. Um, certainly some of the things I've been reading uh, from the, the blogs and websites this summer uh, from well, what's been published in Moscow were in effect saying we're not going to invade Ukraine this year. But next year we're not so sure. Um, and you know, our, our, we do not accept that the Crimea belongs to Ukraine. And we're not at all sure that we accept Ukrainian independence. Now, that means that any beginning of a dialogue about future membership for any of the, the six Eastern partners is about our future relations with Russia. That's why I, I would argue that a common EU policy on Russia is the beginning of any discussion about further Eastern enlargement. And I would argue simply on Turkey that any serious further negotiation on Turkey requires us to have a more coherent policy towards the Middle East as a whole. The current Turkish Foreign Minister, I have to say from all my impressions is rather good, has a much more coherent policy on the Middle East than, than most other uh, European countries. I mean, one other point. Um, Helen will remember the two of us going to um, uh, one of the newer states in the European Union, a very small country, and I won't say which, is, which it is, um, at which we gave a presentation at the European Institute, attended by one of the members of the cabinet, and some people from our foreign office, and so on. And as we came out, Helen's first words to me were, why did we let them in? Um, and it reminded me of the problems we had had with Greece and Greece joined. When the Greeks came in, they thought that they were entitled to be members of the European Union, but they did not accept that this imposed obligations on them. Thus, Papandreou, grandfather, um, behaved like a, a rogue bull in a china shop, making demands but not accepting that he had to make concessions in return. One or two leading politicians in one or two of the newer members have a not dissimilar approach. Here we are, we're entitled, where are the structural funds? What do we get? What are our rights? What do you mean we should be voting with you in the United Nations or whatever it is? Um, that's not happily a common attitude among the new member governments. And I have to say, and here I'm drawing on Helen's research on the impact of enlargement. Um, in the first four years of an EU of 25, decision-making has continued as effectively as before and as fast as before and in some ways rather better. So clearly there's been a, a degree of collegial behaviour. But um, if a Moldovan government came in, or an Armenian government came in, or whatever, there's no guarantee yet. There's a large socialisation process which one has to go to before uh, the 29th or 30th or 31st member of the club understands the limits of what it can do, and I haven't yet mentioned Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo, or Albania as potential members. We've got time for one more question. That's 
So my name is Marko Jurgovic. I am actually from Croatia. And uh, uh, building on the points that were just made uh, with regards to the building of the common policy and the decision-making process in the Europe, do you see this as something feasible going forward, uh, taking into account all, all the things that you have mentioned, or do you see the process going more towards something as United States of uh, Europe? Uh, since already today you see a lot, we see a lot of problems with common decision-making, notwithstanding everything that you mentioned about process being collegial and social. But do you see actually um, a common Europe going forward with a prime minister, foreign minister, or do you see it staying as it is? Ever since I started studying the European community, and I started, I should say, by going to conferences with my wife um, and sitting in and discovering that there were several people there who didn't know much more than me and eventually thinking I knew a bit. Um, it's looked as if the European Union has been in crisis. And then five years later you look back and realize that progress has been made. I remember, Helen will remember, a wonderful argument uh, with Stanley Hoffman at the end of the 1980s who just written a, a diatribe about the failure of European integration, in which Philippe Scutetta, a wonderful Belgian diplomat, went through all the things that the European Union had achieved in the previous seven or eight years. Uh, real progress underneath the radar, so to speak. We, the European Union moves in a sort of crab-wise way, you know, sideways without quite admitting where it's going. Um, so I, I, I think I would say, uh, if you're optimistic about the future of the European Union, you'll be disappointed. But if you're really pessimistic, you'll be surprised. Um, how about that as the beginning of an answer? I mean, now what I might say a little about uh, Croatia and all of those countries. Um, Croatia is one of those many countries which uh, has right-wing politicians who believe that Croatia was the last country in Western Europe, um, as you well know, um, and that after Croatia we move into the deep beyond of the ex-Ottoman, uh, ex-Orthodox uh, world. Um, and that's part of the socialization that Croatian politics and society has to go through in coming to terms with its own history, not that far in the past, after all, and coming to terms with how other people look at it. Um, it took me a long time in the 1990s to realize how recent the bitter history of Europe was for people my age. Yugoslavia broke up in the 1990s because there were a lot of people who remembered what had happened to their parents in the Second World War and who believed the myths about what had happened to their grandparents, their great-grandparents and others in the First World War and way back to the 14th century. Croatia had a lot of those myths, so did other countries. Um, and some very right-wing Catholics who were propagating those myths, um, some of whom were indeed very high up in the hierarchy, or indeed even cardinals. Um, adjusting to a modern Europe is also adjusting our sense of national identity and national history. But we often see the shadows of the past. I, I recall reading about a vote in the Council of Ministers on Croatia's progress 
towards membership in which four member states have voted to speed up Croatian membership against the majority. You can guess, of course, which states they were. Slovenia, Austria, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. So the shadows of the Austro-Hungarian Empire are still there. Thank you very much indeed.